Amen. Excellent song selection, by the way. I, I, I was hoping that you would just sing another hymn, but we didn't plan on that. Again, welcome, and uh, at this time, I invite you to take your Bible again and turn to Nehemiah, Nehemiah chapter 8, and every now and then, uh, I have an experience where I am led to a passage of Scripture that I feel like is necessary to explain and expose so that we all can be further knit together as a church body. So Nehemiah chapter 8 this morning, Nehemiah chapter 8, I'm going to go ahead and read the first 12 verses of Nehemiah chapter 8. Our God has written, and all the people gathered as one man at the square which was in front of the water gate. And they asked Ezra, the scribe, to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had given to Israel. Then Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly of men, women, and all who could understand, and all who could listen with understanding, on the first day of the seventh month. He read from it before the square, which was in front of the water gate, from early morning until midday, in the presence of men and women, those who could understand. And all the people were attentive to the book of the law. Ezra the scribe stood at a wooden podium, which they had made for the purpose. And beside him stood Mattathiah, Shema, Aniah, Uriah, Hilkiah, Messiah on his right, and Padiah, Mishael, Malchijah, and Hashem, Hashbadana, Zechariah, and Meshulam on his left. Ezra opened the book in the sight of the people, for the people, for he was standing above all the people. And when he opened it, all the people stood up. Then Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, while lifting up their hands. Then they bowed low and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also, Jeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamin, Achab, Shabbatai, Hodiah, Messiah, Kalida, Azariah, Josabad, Hanan, and Peliah, the Levites, explained the law to the people while the people remained in their place. They read from the book, from the law of God, translating to give the sense so that they understand the meaning. Then Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra, the priest and scribe, And the Levites, who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn and weep. For all the people were weeping when they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, Go, eat of the fat, drink of the sweet, 
and send portions to him who has nothing prepared. For this day is holy to our Lord. Do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be still, for the day is holy. Do not be grieved. All the people went away to eat, to drink, to send portions, and to celebrate a great festival because they understood the words which had been, which had been made known to them. Oh God, what a rich passage. What a historical passage. I pray for your grace and your spirit to tattoo these words on our hearts and minds and respond appropriately. Amen. In the world, we see trends and fads come and go, don't we? One of the trends we see come and go is the trend of nutrition and diet. Mm-hmm. Words and phrases that were unheard of when I grew up have now become part of our everyday vernacular. Words like organic, vegan, no MSG, grass-fed, gluten-free, aspartame-free, carb-free, sugar-free, and my personal favorite, guilt-free. Now, there's really nothing wrong or dangerous with these food trends because they have no spiritual or eternal detrimental influence. But the trends and fads in American churchianity do. They have a potentially detrimental influence on the souls of men. Nowadays, it's apparently trendy to replace historical and biblical theology with theatrics. It's also trendy to replace exegetically based sermons with skits. It's also trendy to replace doctrinally saturated hymns sung corporately, like we just did, with concert-like performances and sensational dramatic solos. It's also trendy to replace, to replace genuine Christ-like love and fellowship with programs and events. It's also trendy, more so here than it is in L.A., to live the gospel, quote-unquote, missionally, at the expense of preaching the word accurately, comprehensively, systematically, and boldly. All of these spiritual trends are not only detrimental to the Christian, but they're also misleading to the pagan. And as we observe these trends across the board, it's no wonder why the average professing Christian cannot clearly articulate the gospel, defend their worldview against the atheists, discern theological error, and cope with trials and affliction in a God-honoring way. And so what does that say about the overall health of the church in America? It says we're sick. It says we're hurting. It says we're weak. And listen, it says we're unhealthy. 
So how do we become healthy? We know how to become physically healthy. There's no secret. You eat right and exercise. A little bit of good old-fashioned discipline, you'll become a healthy, physically person, physical person. But how do we become healthy spiritually? How does SVBC become a healthy church? Where do we find the medicine? Well, in Nehemiah 8, we can find the cure. In Nehemiah 8, God's people were sick. Like the church today, they were unhealthy. But by God's grace, they found medicine. Their spiritual physician, Ezra, dispensed to God's people who were sick the medicine of God's word. The medicine is found in God himself, and we find God himself in the written word. Nowhere else. Through the revelation of the word of God, Israel found revival at a time where they were in spiritual darkness. And because that happened, I believe that our nation and this community and this church can also find spiritual revival. If we, like Ezra, stand up on a podium and explain the word of God to God's people. It's that simple. There's no tricks. There's no gimmicks. There's no inventions. That will do it. It's the word of God and it alone. Now, before we dive into Nehemiah 8, I feel like it's good to give a brief review of Hebrew history so that we can get the historical context of our passage today, okay? And I, and I don't do this to be too elementary. I just want us to be on the same page, okay? In Genesis, read about the history of the world the time of the patriarchs, and it ends with Joseph, right? At the end of Israel, at the end of Genesis, Israel finds itself enslaved to Egypt. And then because God remembers his covenant, because he's a God of grace, he hears their groanings after 400 years, and he raises up Moses to go and lead the people out of slavery. Moses leads them to Mount Sinai, where God gives his people the law. And the civil law in Leviticus. Then there's a time of wandering in the wilderness. After that, there's the conquest of the promised land. After Joshua dies, things start to decline. Joshua, excuse me, Judges 2.10 says there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord. Nor yet the work which... God had done for Israel. Now, as a side note, this verse is a reminder to us all the reason why you need to know the Bible for yourself and teach the Bible to your children. Because it only takes one generation of spiritual negligence for a faith community to dwindle away and die. If all the Bibles in America were burned... My children and their children would not know the Lord. In Judges, we read about the declining cycles of disobedience, judgment, repentance, deliverance. Disobedience, judgment, 
Repentance, deliverance. We see that cycle in Judges played out. Finally, like common to man, they say we want a human king. God's not good enough to rule us. We need more than the prophetic written word. We want a human king to tell us what to do. And so God says, okay. He tells Samuel, his prophet, give them what they want. But tell them what's going to happen. The king that you so desperately want, he's going to take your daughters to be his slaves. He's going to take your harvest for himself. He is going to take your possessions to make them ready for war. And that's exactly what happened, didn't it? So Saul is enthroned, and he is a failure, an apostate. But God, again, is faithful. He does not forget his covenant he made to his people. So he graciously anoints David. He's crowned. And under his righteous rule, Israel prospers and becomes the richest nation on the planet, and they plateau. Israel never again became as prosperous and strong and healthy after David passed away. After David passes away, Solomon comes on board, and it's all downhill from there. First Kings 11 says, Uh, When Solomon was old, his wives turned his heart away after other gods. And his heart was not wholly devoted to the Lord his God, as as the heart of of his father David had been. Later, the kingdom of Israel splits after Solomon's death. You have Judah. Okay, this is where you need to understand the historical context here. After David and Solomon... The kingdom of Israel splits in two. You have Judah, the southern kingdom, and Israel, the northern kingdom. We read about that in 1 Kings 12 to 14. Now, eventually, after a lot of drama, you could say, right? Both kingdoms are besieged by pagan nations. Why? Why does God allow pagan nations to literally go in and besiege his own covenant people? Well, The scripture tells us that it was an act of judgment. God used the pagan nations of Assyria and Babylon to slaughter Israel for their sins of idolatry and rebellion. So Israel Israel falls to Assyria in 722 B.C., then the Jews are scattered. Later, Judah, the southern kingdom, falls to Babylon... And then after that, they are in captivity for 70 years. King Nebuchadnezzar kills the people, destroys the temple, takes captive thousands. And listen, he leaves Jerusalem, which is the holy city, city of David, where the temple was built. And remember, the Jews believe that the temple literally housed the very presence of God. So it was a big deal to the Jews for the temple to be plummeted. So Jerusalem is left in ruins by King Nebuchadnezzar. 
Then, after Babylon, the world empire changes leadership. It goes from the Babylonians to the Medo-Persians, all because God enacted vengeance for the temple. So, interesting thing is, is that God used the Babylonians as an instrument of judgment, but God inflicted judgment upon Babylon for killing his covenant people. That, that's a tension you cannot solve, so I'm not going to try. So every Hebrew is under the rule of the Persian Empire once, once the Persians come in and take over the world, literally. So then we get to the time of Ezra and Nehemiah, which is where we are today. King Cyrus, the Persian king, does something miraculous. In Ezra 1.1, it's revealed to us that the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus. What's it say? The Lord moved the heart of Cyrus. Guess what? God's sovereign. He has control over everything. He has control of the heart of the king to do whatever he wishes. His kingdoms on earth are merely instruments to do his will. Embrace that truth. So he allowed the Jews to return and rebuild the temple. But not only did he allow the Jews to return, he also footed the bill. Isn't that interesting? The pagans paid for the temple to be rebuilt. That was pretty cool. After the temple is completed in the following years, Ezra leads the Hebrews through a spiritual reformation. Okay, so, you know, you know if you know me, you know that my thing is the process of reformation. But guess what? That's not, that wasn't the only and first reformation that took place. You can really see the Jews as the first reformers during this time. And how did they reform? How did they reform the Jewish state at the time? They brought the word of God. They brought the word of God and they reinstituted the festivals and the sacrificial system. They reinstituted God's holy law. But after the temple, there needed to be something else to happen. Who remembers what happens after the temple was rebuilt? Anybody remember? Class time, quiz time. Anybody know? Okay, this is why I'm doing this. They got to rebuild the walls. Because remember, in this time, big cities had to have walls uh, built to protect themselves. So, Nehemiah goes to Jerusalem under the king's blessing, and leads the people to rebuild the walls around Jerusalem. In Nehemiah 2.5, it says, I said to the king, if it pleased the king, and if your servant has found favor before you, send me to Judah, to the city of my father's tombs, that I may rebuild it. So, another miraculous event happens after the walls are rebuilt. There is not only a reformation theologically. There is not only a reemergence of the holy law. There is a revival. Reformation, revival. You cannot have revival without reformation. 
Ezra set the stage for revival. And that's where we land here today. We pick up in the story of redemptive history and a time in Jewish history where the temple had just been rebuilt, the walls had just been rebuilt, and now Nehemiah, the governor, comes along and he institutes and is instrumental in a spiritual revival. Israel was in a spiritual state of utter desolation because the word of God had been neglected since the Babylonian captivity. And looking at it from a human perspective, they were in darkness. They did not have the light of the word, which according to Psalm 119.105 is the lamp for our feet, right? So if you don't have the word of God being taught to you, if you don't have the word of God being read to you, if you don't study the word of God for yourself and hide it in your heart, you're blind. It is the word of God that lights up our path. So now, after the word of God was hidden for 70 years, under the leadership of Ezra and Nehemiah, their relationship with their creator, their covenant-making, covenant-keeping Lord, will be restored through the revelation of the written word. And so, Nehemiah 8, 1-12 stands, stands as an example today, or a prescription, rather, for acquiring spiritual health among God's covenant people. At that time, the Jews were under the Old Covenant. Now, the Church of Jesus Christ, which is us, the dirty Gentiles who have been grafted in, they found revival through the exact same way the church in America will find it. Getting back to the Scriptures. But not just getting back to the scriptures, understanding what to do with the scriptures. There are four keys in this passage to having a healthy church that involve the word of God. If you want to grow in your spiritual life, if you want to see revival, you need to thoroughly understand and implement these keys to having a spiritually healthy life. And so the first key here, it's plain to see in verses 1 to 4, is the reading of the word. The reading of the word is the first key that needs to be implemented in order to have a spiritually healthy church. Look at verse 1 again. It says, And all the people gathered as one man at the square, which was in front of the water gate. And they asked Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses which the Lord had given Israel. I want you to see who took initiative here. Who took initiative? It wasn't the pastor that went out and reined everybody in, was it? The book was brought to the people because they demanded it. They had a hunger for it. So they went to their shepherd, they went to their leader and said, bring the book, we 
need it. We're starving. And so, Ezra did it. The book was not a book like what we think of, like the book I have right here sitting on my pulpit. It was a scroll. And it was brought out into a platform. They knew that if Israel was going to be rebuilt from the ground up, they needed there to be an expose of their word. They knew there was nothing else to say but the word of God. After being spiritually malnourished for seven decades, they figured out that it was time to hear. Not from men, but from their God. And notice they also didn't say, Bring us the word from the Lord. Notice they didn't say, brother, share a word that God has given you. No. They weren't mystics. They weren't looking for signs. They weren't looking for some intelligible speech. They demanded to hear from the book, which is the only sure way to hear from God himself. John Calvin said that when the Bible speaks... God speaks, and surely he does. If you want to hear God speak to you, open up the Bible and read it aloud. That's how you hear God speak to you. And so I would, I would cherish the same thing as a spiritual leader. Don't ever hesitate to ask me or be afraid to ask any elder, any Christian for that matter. What does the Bible say? Bring me God's book, because it alone is the final authority for all matters of theology and practice. I want to be, if we're going to be a Bible church, that means we've got to know our Bibles. We've got to know how to navigate through our Bibles. We've got to know how to answer life's questions with the Bible. So that involves some hard work. Then in verse 2, we see who... Who, who was involved in this reading? Well, it was men and women and all who could understand and all who could listen with understanding. So that tells us this was, this was an all-inclusive event. It involved the entire community, including young people and children. We see here that it was important for Jews to have God's word be known and used by all the people, all the people, not just a select few number of priests and leaders. It was the same in the early church. But this changed. This changed as time went on and as fewer people had access to Bible teaching. The Protestant-Reformation, with its emphasis on sola scriptura, returned the church to the biblical principle that every believer must be read the scripture and taught the scripture on a regular basis. The word translated read in the Hebrew, it's not just a quiet story time. It's the Hebrew equivalent to the word preach. It means to call out, to proclaim. Read it with authority. 
Read it as a herald delivering a message from the king. Reading aloud this way in public was customary. And it continued into the New Covenant Church age. We read in 1 Timothy 4, 13, Paul says, Until I come, give attention to the public reading of Scripture. And so this is, a why, this is why we have a time of public Scripture reading in our church. Because we need to read it together corporately. It needs to be read from the pulpit. It needs to be expounded. It needs to get into your soul. It's biblical. And churches that fail to do this are disobeying a command. And as I alluded to already, notice that this was not a short story time. It went on for hours. In verse 3 it says, from early morning until midday. Early morning until midday. Isn't that amazing? I mean, we, we start to get bored and... Our mind starts to wander after two minutes. I mean, be honest. In the 27 verses I read this morning, how many of you kept up the whole time? We're not, we're not used to long scripture reading and prayer. Our culture despises it. Because we live in an age where instant uh, access to information is, is rarely available at our fingertips, Right? We have short commercials, short conversations, everything's short. Let's get it done. I got too much to do. Got to move on to the next thing. But look what the Jews did from early morning until midday. Now, this is not a prescriptive passage to argue for a long, for a five-hour long sermon. Most of you are thinking, oh, thank you, thank you. But it does show. Here's what it does show. This is the principle we need to understand and embrace. It does show that ample time is allotted for the public hearing of God's word in the community of believers. In the community of believers. There are churches that I know of who would, be, feel, who would feel they would be shortchanged if the sermon was less than an hour. I know many friends who would be discouraged if the pastor jettisoned public scripture reading. And rightfully so. Notice in verse 4, that Ezra also had a very organized, well-prepared posture. He stood on a wooden podium. Obviously, was capable of holding 13 others. Most likely, these were influential lay elders. I'm not going to read all those names again. In other words, he stood on an elevated pulpit. Now, here's one reason why I wanted to preach this passage this morning. I continually see in my interactions with Christians, on social media, in movies, and testimonies, that the pulpit is despised. People don't even understand why it's necessary. And they're willing to replace it with something else. So if you want a biblical defense for why a pulpit is necessary in a Bible church, a true church, 
Here's one place to go. Romans 8, verse 4. Excuse me, Nehemiah 8, verse 4. There's a biblical defense for having a pulpit. We need to understand that it's biblical and it's historical. A couple of years ago, I went to be involved in a wedding at a PCUSA church. Okay? PCUSA is the Presbyterian Church of the United States of America. It's one of the more liberal sect of Presbyterianism. So I walked to this church in Southern California. It was going to be for a military wedding. And I walked in. It was beautiful Southern California. Palm trees. You know, it was really nice out. Beautiful campus. I walked in, and the church was eye-popping. Beautiful architecture. Old wooden pews. Stained glass window. Choir loft. You name it. And one of the things I noticed after taking in all these extravagant pieces of art, I thought, where's the pulpit? I know Presbyterians believe the Bible. Where is it? And so I, I walked close to the platform, and this massive wooden pulpit about this big and this high, it was off to the side. So I walk over there, and uh, I walk to this side, because I, I want to, you know, go check it out and stand in it, you know, and envision myself preaching, looking down on all these pews, but I couldn't get to it. I couldn't even get into the pulpit. You know why? Because the pulpit had become a storage bin. How sad is that? How sad that the pulpit was not even used. It became a place to store earthly junk. Crazy. Spiritual negligence on steroids. One preacher rightly observes, as the pulpit goes, so goes the church. And as the church goes, so goes the culture. So as we see here, everyone involved in the public proclamation or reading of Scripture has found some medicine. Which is the first key to having a healthy church. Secondly, the second key to having a healthy church is to have reverence for the word. Reverence. Reverence means healthy fear. Look at verse 5. Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people as he was standing above all the people. And when he opened it, the people stood up. The people were standing up when the book was opened. This was an act of reverence and respect. Coming in on this practice, James Boyce says that it is an acknowledgement of what the Bible is, the very word of God. It is the proper heart respect that prepares the worshiper for hearing it expounded. 
This is why we stand when we engage in the public reading of Scripture. Because it's an external way of showing reverence. Think of it this way. Say you're kicking back at home on the couch on a Sunday afternoon and you're enjoying seeing the bears crush the Seahawks. And though you are enjoying it so much, you don't want to get off the couch after you hear a knock on the door. Because you don't want to miss Russell Wilson throwing up interception. A yard before the touch. I'm just kidding. So you don't want to miss the game. So you say, honey, can you please get that? And as she walks to the door and opens it, she says, oh, hi, Mr. President. Welcome to our home. And in comes the President of the United States. Your wife or husband escorts President Obama to your living room. Now, regardless of our opinion of President Obama, would you just sit on the couch and be like, what's up, Barack? Absolutely not. The second you heard his voice, you would spring up, make sure you look presentable, run to the door, and say, it's such an honor to be Mr. President. Wouldn't you? So what right do we, as God's creatures, to not have at least that level of reverence for the Word of God? To have more reverence for a man than the Word of God? It's not right. So not only did the people show reverence by standing, they demonstrated their respect by God's word for giving an intense verbal amen. In verse 6, they said, amen, amen, which means verily or truly. And so when you say amen to the word of God, you are not just agreeing with it, you are saying that you're willing to submit to it. And that should be what comes out of our mouth when we hear the word proclaimed accurately. After they responded with a verbal pronouncement, they worshipped. They worshipped. Now, if you want to see what it really means to worship, go to Nehemiah 8. Ezra led the people in worship. And it wasn't through music. There was no music here. It was simply because he read the word. And it compelled the people to fall on their face. It compelled them to prostrate themselves. Which was an outward sign of humility before God. That's what worship means. Worship means to prostrate oneself with your face to the ground. Worship does not mean standing up and raising your arms. Worship is having a lowly posture and state of mind before our God in heaven. Worship is ascribing to the holy God of the universe the glory that's owed to him. 
Worship is to be fearfully trembling and being awestruck by his supreme personhood. And if you're going to be awestruck by his supreme personhood, what does that imply? That you need to know the word. Worship means to properly view him as the sovereign king and to humble yourself as a servant redeemed by grace. Worship means that you see yourself as small and God is big. Psalm 29, verse 2, ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name and worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. So it's clear from the word of God that we are commanded to have reverence for him. To have reverence for his word. We're not to view him and approach him whimsically and casually like he's our earthly brother or pal. Psalm 2.11 says, Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Leviticus 26.2, You shall keep my Sabbath and reverence in my sanctuary. And so having a reverence for the word is essential to being a healthy Christian, to having a healthy church. And if you don't revere the word of God, if you do not revere God himself, you will not revere his word. And if you don't revere his word, you won't revere God. Thirdly, the third mark of a healthy church, a healthy spiritual life, is the exposition of the word. The exposition of the word. Real quick here. The 13 men, the Levites, explained the law to the people while the people were in their place. They read from the book, from the law of God, translating to give the sense so that they understood the reading. Let me just say, we affirm and agree that the Holy Spirit resides in the Christian and that he or she has the ability to understand the Bible themselves. We get that. We affirm that. That does not mean you are not to submit yourself to a qualified teacher and preacher. Or a plurality of teacher and preachers, better yet. God has willed and instituted the church, and he has, by his sovereign will and purpose, placed men in those positions to equip you and to teach you. Lone Ranger Christians who say, I had to have the Holy Spirit, he's my teacher, they're either unsaved or extremely immature. So the Hebrew word here, explain, it doesn't mean a monotone, boring, timid style. It's the Hebrew word that literally means give heed to. The hearers were exhorted to give heed to what they were hearing, to discern and understand, and then to put it into practice. Okay? Very important. The difference between teaching and preaching. Teaching, you're just spotting out information. Two plus two is four. Here are the components of a cell. Here are the parts of speech. Here's who wrote the Declaration of Independence. That's just information. But what's going on here, and what I'm attempting to do, is teach you and then exhort you. 
to command you, based on the authority of Scripture, to give heed to what's being taught. In preaching, you have information, then you have exhortation. One of my favorite professors said that preaching gets to the you. You need to do something. You need to respond. And so a teacher does not have to be gifted in preaching, but a preacher does have to be able to teach. When we preach, we proclaim, we say, here's an example to follow. We say, as a result, here's what God has said, here's what it means, now respond. And so this is why we do expository preaching. This is why expository preaching will always, as long as I'm the pastor, be the emphasis. Because if we are a Bible church, we must first and foremost be committed to Bible exposition. Otherwise, stop calling ourselves a Bible church. Also in verse 8, we see here that what the characteristics or the progression of a Bible sermon exposition entails. There are three elements of it. You first start out with reading it. You first, then you translate it, which has the idea of breaking down into small, bite-sized pieces so that the hearers don't choke. John Calvin also said that preachers must be like fathers, dividing bread into small pieces to feed their children. So there is some art and wisdom when it comes to the work of teaching and preaching, expository preaching and teaching. And the grand purpose here is that so that people can understand. Look at verse 8. Verse 8 says the purpose of a lengthy exposition was so that they could understand the reading and apply it. So continual, systematic, exegetical, Bible exposition is vital to the health of a church. Without it, the church is either dead or it's living off of spiritual junk food. And so when you hear the clear, precise, accurate, authoritative explanation of the Word of God, you are getting nutritious and well-balanced meal. Now quickly, with the last with the time I have left, there's one more key. The last key to having a spiritually healthy life in a spiritually healthy church is to have a proper response to the Word. Proper response to the word. You could have the reading. You could have the external reverence. You could have the exposition. But if you do not respond properly to it all, then you're still going to be sick. Look at the end of verse 9. What's the response? It says, all the people were weeping. They wept. These exiled people who were spiritually sick, listen, they were so convicted by what they were hearing that their response was to weep in humiliation and grief. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever heard a kind, have you ever heard a sermon where that was your response? 
after hearing it? I have. Often. In fact, last March, the Shepherds Conference, a man who continually causes me to weep with conviction is a man named Mr. Paul Washer. He preached a sermon at the Shepherds Conference, and he had a room of 3,000 men just sit in silence. The response to his message was not, hey, let's go get a donut now. Yeah, that was good, but what's next? That was a real pre- that was real preaching. It caused people to respond the way that these Jews responded. And now, not every sermon should cause you to weep with conviction, but some should. Some should. Here's where the revival was born. Salvation always begins. Listen. Salvation always begins with genuine godly sorrow over your sin. We see this clearly illustrated in Luke 15. Prodigal son. He had a true conversion because he had godly contrition. He said, I will get up and go to my father and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. You need to feel that. If you're going to be saved, you need to feel that unworthiness. You need to be reminded of it. Because if you forget how unworthy you are of your salvation, you will become thankless and cold and distracted. But these Israelites, they experienced that. But Nehemiah, like a good shepherd, He comes around and he brings his arm around him. And he says, don't. Don't grieve. Let your tears of shame become tears of joy. He says, do not be grieved. The joy of the Lord is your strength. Now, what is the joy of the Lord? I'm going to let the Prince of Preachers, Charles Spurgeon, define that for us. He says, quote, Joy of the Lord. It springs from God and has God for its object. The believer who is in a spiritually healthy state rejoices mainly in God himself. He is happy... Because there is, a, there is a God, 
and because God is in his person and character. Why the, con- the contemplation of God to one who knows that this God is his God forever and ever is enough to make the eyes overflow with tears because of a deep, mysterious, unutterable bliss which fills the heart. That's a good definition, isn't it? The joy of the Lord springs from him. It has him as his object. You can rejoice because God is in you through Christ. And his person is in you. Therefore, it should be the natural overflow. You know that God is yours forever and ever. And the thought that he... Like the hymn says, we just sung, how marvelous, how wonderful is my Savior's love for me. Does that contemplation of God still move you? Are you glad you're saved? Does it do anything to your heart anymore? Because if it doesn't, you're sick. The joy of the Lord is not enough to move, to continue, to live life, to do ministry. You know not of this joy. If you're not sick, you're immature, or you don't know God. And because they had the joy of the Lord, they had cause to celebrate. Why? What would necessitate a great festival? It's interesting. It's not because of a really special event that happened. And when we celebrate, it's because of a marriage. Because of a graduation. Because of an anniversary. These precious Jews, they celebrated only because they understood the word of God. Isn't that amazing? So I want nothing more for this church than to be healthy. And the only way for us to become healthy and strong and prosperous, spiritually speaking... And effective is to wholeheartedly commit ourselves in word and action to the reading of the word, the reverence of the word, the exposition of the word, and the proper response to the word. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for this truth. May we respond properly to this message. May our heart be rekindled for your word this morning. May we develop a greater fear in our hearts for you and for your word. May we be like the Israelites in the time of Nehemiah who said, bring the book. May the leaders of this church 
diligently translate the word and give sense to it so that we can all understand. May the people of this church willingly and eagerly come and sit under the word for the good of their own souls and for the good of those that they minister to in their life. We love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.